Welcome, everyone. It's Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites here on the Mark Steiner Show on the home of the 2016 Baltimore Mayoral Debate, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Soundbites is our weekly exploration of food, agriculture, and our environment here on the Mark Steiner Show. And this morning, we look at the U.S. Supreme Court decision last week that declined to hear a challenge to the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan by the American Farm Bureau Federation. And we're going to hear from the son of a British farmer speaking from his heart about a decision to stop eating meat. That's all coming up later in Soundbites. But first, we begin the hour with a look at some of the key issues of systemic change and sustainability inside of our food system. Institutional Food Procurement and Recommendations for Improvement is a report with this, that was put out by the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Uh, Rachel Santo is Program Coordinator of Food Committees and Public Health at the Center for a Livable Future, uh, who is part of that report. And Rachel, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, Rachel, let me just start. This is a... So, this is an issue that we've talked about before on the show, which is um, in, in, in part about um, the power of large institutions to change the nature of our food and agricultural economy, um, mm-hmm. right? So, so you were delving into that. One of the things in this report was really glaring was the, was the near monopoly of, of, of tens of billions of dollars of, of, of food industry and how it's delivered in this country. It's, that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's quite shocking for us as well. Um, when we started looking into it, we found that the North American food service market has about $72 billion in annual um, money spent. And of that, 60% is outsourced to companies. Um, 75% of that outsourcing is just to three companies, um, which is Aramark, um, Sodexo, and Bon er, Bon Appetit is one of the, um, a, a larger compass called Compass Group. Um, and those three companies alone basically dominate the institutional food procurement market. So now, so so looking at that, and and looking at what you looked at in the report in terms of uh, the, the local and 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 community industry in 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 raising vegetables, and so talk about the contradictions there and what you discovered. So one of the things that we found is that um, when you have really big food service companies coming in to um, to provide food for institutions, they they negotiate on large volumes with food manufacturers, and as a result, they're able to negotiate lo- lower prices. Um, but sometimes this actually excludes smaller and independent retailers, such as maybe your local farmer or um, a local producer in the area, because they can't meet the volume demand, but also they can't meet these what's called um, rebate systems. So basically what happens is when you have a, a large volume discount um, coming in, uh, the food service man- management company can make money off of that, and that's often how they uh, they they pay money for bonuses and things like that. But then, as a result, uh, smaller procurers can't offer those, and so um, sometimes they're just left out of contracts completely because of because they can't provide um, those large volume discounts, and they also can't what what's called buying on contract, where um, companies agree to buy a certain percentage of their profit or their products through these food service, these food um, manufacturing companies. So it's basically excluding the smaller and independent producers from even being able to bid on contracts. Now, the, the, it's a, and we're not talking just about organic. This is a small-scale regional organic or, as you write, traditional foods in any, in any, in any market um, that we're talking about. And you also talk about how in places like Europe, Brazil, Japan, and other places that there's been some changes afoot in how that's being and, 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 and how that operates and, and what have they been and how they affected those economies. Mm-hmm. So um, they vary greatly based on where they're located. Brazil actually has one of the most innovative um, institutional f- food procurement models for their school system in particular. And um, this is coming out of federal level legislation that basically mandates that I think it's at least 30% of their food procured through schools must come from small regional farmers in the areas. And so this is really trying to, um, it's almost an economic development strategy, a rural development strategy for a lot of Brazilian regions. Um, And other places in Europe, they've done similar things. Italy um, and Rome, they had a very progressive um, food procurement policies. But these, again, aren't just based on like local or sustainable food. They also include animal welfare benefits, fair trade um, policies, things like that. But unfortunately, what we've seen so far in the U.S. is that it's mostly been concentrated on the distance. Most of the efforts so far have really focused on the distance 
um, that the, the farmers are from the school or the institution instead of also looking at these other factors such as, such as purchasing fair trade coffee or bananas or purchasing something that might be sustainable but not local. Um, so we're, we're tr really trying in this report also to bring up that there are other aspects to consider, not just the, uh, the distance from the institution. So if you have, I think if I read this right in the report, $72 billion is the, mm -hmm. is, is the, is the North American, uh, is the food service industry, which is a huge industry, obviously. Right. Um, and, 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 and you hear from farmers all the time when we, when we talk to them who are local farmers, whether they are organic farmers or not, uh, but, but farmers in this region, that there's no way for them to market their things together to get them to these places, B, A, and B, there are no local butcheries, et, et cetera. So, so, so what, so what affects that? I mean, I know that the statewide of Maryland, that it's like almost $800 million a year that's spent by our school systems on, on purchasing food. So talk about that leverage and what all that might mean and, and what you determined. Mm -hmm. So we really we looked at trying to quantify the potential market impact that this, you know, $72 billion industry could have if it were to start shifting a large proportion of that um, to better procured food. But the problem is that um, those figures, like that was the only figure we could really even determine. We can't even find um, some really solid numbers in terms of just like the number of institutions that are being served because Basically, we compile that data from um, reports, annual reports from the, the food service companies themselves. And so either this market info isn't, isn't available yet or it's kind of being held in secret by the companies. And so that's what we found <laughs> is a lot of this is kind of uncovering the transparency of the market. And so if in stuff where these food service companies aren't publicly owned um, institutions, but they're they're contracting with publicly owned institutions, it's really hard then to get the data to know what the potential impact could be if we started shifting large scale. But we think that um, just the basic figure of $72 billion a year was pretty compelling. And if we can even start to shift just a small percentage of that, that would indicate a lot more billions of dollars that would be going towards a more regionalized, sustainable food procurement. I mean, so, I mean, there is movement in that direction, as you point out, with 40% mm -hmm. of the school districts participating in these kind of farm-to-school activities that you, mm -hmm. you looked at in part of your report. But, I, but, so, but I'm curious where you, where, how you see this shifting. If, if you do see it shifting, I mean, because this is a huge industry. They're based on the, the, the large-scale industrial farms and CAFOs that where we get most of our, our, our vegetables and meat, whether it's organic or whether it's non-organic food. doesn't make any difference. So how do you see this? How, how does your report see this shifting? So I think, one, that there are, are a lot of organizations that are working on this in different parts of the sectors. So, for instance, you've got Healthcare Without Harm that's working with hospitals and other healthcare providers. You've got Real Food Challenge, which is trying to change right. universities and colleges. You've got the Farm to School Network, which is looking at um, school K-12 schools. You've got um, a new initiative, actually, by... It started out with the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, and it's called the Good Food Purchasing Program. And they're trying to shift large-scale like city level um, school systems. So they've already done Los Angeles and they're now trying for Chicago and a few other places that they're, they're starting to share their ideas with. And I think that all of these organizations um, have a lot of strengths and that coming together, they may be able to start convincing um, institutions as a whole to, to present really compelling cases. So for instance, um, in my work as an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins, and we started, um, we convinced our university to sign a pledge to, procure 35% real food. So that's, you know, local, sustainable, fair, and humanely raised for animal products. And as a result, we've seen local farmers that have been able to massively increase um, the amount of, of fruit and vegetables that they can offer to our school. But also we talked to a local, um, it was a grass-fed beef farmer, and they were able to almost double their size because of Hopkins um, purchasing from them. So it's not that we want all farms to just keep growing bigger, but instead we can see that this is having an impact on local and regional food pr producers. So um, I think it's in some ways, like for instance, um, Hopkins has also started purchasing and has given money to to um, support the Baltimore Food Hub project. So right. large institutions that have this money, they can invest in, for instance, abattoirs or other um, food processing facilities that could facilitate the transition towards more regional food systems. So I think it's that large purchasing power that can then you know, indicate that there's interest, there's enough interest for farmers to transition or um, to stay alive.
I mean, th- this we've, we've, we're just touching the surface here with this report, but it'd be really interesting to, uh, in coming weeks um, on here on the, on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, to really kind of get into this in a much deeper way in terms of how this challenges the systems that we have, because most of us would like healthier food. The question is, how do we get to it, which is part of this report talks about as well. We're talking about this report, Instituting Change, an overview of institutional food and procurement and recommendations for improvement. We'll link to this report on our website at SteinerShow.org and SoundbitesRadio.org. Um, I want to thank Rachel Santo from the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future for joining us today on Soundbites. Rachel, thank you so much once again. You're welcome. Thank Great you. Work. Thank you. Great work. We're now about to have a conversation with Daryl Fears, who's a reporter for The Washington Post covering the environment with a focus on Chesapeake Bay and wildlife and has written a piece in The Post on March the 1st, Supreme Court ends challenge to the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan. Huge news. Uh, and Daryl, welcome. Uh, Daryl Fields, welcome to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. For the first time, good to have you with us. Uh, thanks for having me. So the, the, let's let's take a little background here. This this case. Um, uh, you know, the last twenty three years or so on the air, we've been covering the Chesapeake Bay pretty intensely. Um, and but th- this is a very significant case, at least in terms of the law and why people are opposing it so much. Because give us a bit of background to what happened here. Well. Um as you know, the Chesapeake Bay is under a, what's called a pollution diet, a, a plan that cleans it up and uh, restores health so that uh, fish can basically flourish there and the oysters can recover and so much can happen. Uh, the bay is very dynamic. People uh, swim there and fish there all the time, and so uh, they want to restore the uh, habitat and the economy around it. Uh, but uh, it's a very expensive undertaking, uh, costing billions of dollars, mostly to states and uh, local governments and cities, uh, and also farms. And the Farm Bureau uh, challenged uh, the Bay Plan because they felt that uh, the EPA overstepped its bounds. They felt that states have jurisdiction over the Bay and not the federal government. Uh, and uh, that suit uh, started from there at Everybody um, who knew about this felt that uh, the Farm Bureau really didn't have an interest in the Chesapeake Bay. They were looking forward to the EPA possibly regulating pollution in uh, an area where most of their, uh, I guess, constituents, uh, mega farms, operate at the Mississippi River, and they didn't want the EPA meddling there and perhaps meddling with uh, how these farms. I mean, because, in essence, with this, this case that um, the, the EPA ruling, the Environmental Protection Agency's ruling, y- using the Clean Water Act um, is what allowed them to go through six states and start um, implementing some rules at every state, farmers and municipalities with sewage waste and farmers with their um, runoff from the land have to, uh, have to address, right? Is, I mean, that's, that's the heart of this. Yeah, that's the heart of it. The heart of it is that the sewers have to stop uh, allowing overflows into the bay that, that deliver like, millions of gallons of uh, human waste mixed with storm water you know, every time it rains. And farms had to pretty much on each individual farm erect some type of barrier or change their land in a way that didn't allow runoff to the tributary to the Chesapeake Bay so that there wouldn't be more fertilizers, uh, and cows basically stepping off the land into streams uh, to uh, cool themselves and also defecate in the water. That was causing huge problems. You know, things like chicken farms or uh, CAFOs, as they say, uh, cattle farms, right. uh, allowing waste to run off from the farms into the water. All major problems. So, and this covers, this particular bill covers um, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., Pennsylvania. Um, New York as well, correct? The six states. So, right. yeah, six states uh, that border the Chesapeake Bay as well as the District of Columbia. I think Delaware is in there. Delaware is in there as well. Right. All part of the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Correct. That feed into this. Because for a long time there were arguments. I know farmers in the eastern shore of Maryland in Delmarva in general would be arguing that, well, look, most of this um, pollution is uh, coming from Pennsylvania, not us. So why, why just pick on us? Yeah, that's the same right. argument that the governor here uh, in Maryland had, that uh, the farm, the, the, mostly with sediment, but they're saying that it's flowing off the north, so it's coming from New York, where it's the starting point, uh, I guess, the Cooperstown, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. It starts there and uh, flows. 
and the, the other issue here is, I mean, I want to get to the Mississippi issue because I think this is the crux of, of the fear of of not just some large uh, CAFO farming industries but also a chemical industry and other industries and municipalities, I should add, um, not just business, is the cost, right? Because, oh, oh. because there's, no, there's no tax structure in place federally or even in, among those states to pay for any of the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, there is some uh, federal help, but yes, the states have to uh, ante up, uh, so to speak. But uh, they have uh, they have neglected for so long uh, cleaning this up that this was a measure that would kind of compel them to do it. Uh, but you're right; uh, there are a number of people joined this uh, Farm Bureau suit, including uh, the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. I think that's his name, but I'm not absolutely right, sure. Right. And also uh, the fertilizer industry, uh, the home builders uh, joined this because uh, they were regulated as well. They were told to stop the amount of sediment that's coming from this construction site into waters. So they had to take steps that, I guess, cut into their profits marginally or they might say in a major way. And, and also here, I mean, just recently we had um, where we're broadcasting from in Baltimore, um, this the last storm, a huge amount of sewage runoff that went into the harbor and into the bay. Um, and because our infrastructure is so antiquated in this city, but it affects places like D.C. and it affects places like um, Anne Arundel County and any municipality on this watershed is going to up, have to come up with planning and money to tighten up their facilities, which is no small matter either. Tens of millions of dollars. Right. Uh, the District of Columbia is building uh, new pipes to accommodate uh, the, the rainwater that uh, its current sewer can't handle. I mean, as you know, you seem to be very well acquainted with this stuff, that when it rains, uh, especially when it storms, the antiquated sewer pipes cannot handle uh, the waste that comes from cities that have, 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 have expanded greatly since these systems were built, and uh, it can't handle the water and the waste that's coming from all these homes and businesses. And so they just release the waste untreated into the water, and that's causing any number of problems. Some people think it's helping to switch the sex of fish and contributing right, uh, right. to disease that's decimating oysters. And so, you know, these things have to be done. But we're talking about a 20 to $25 billion project that's cleaned up. It's a huge, that's a lot of money over the, uh, 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 over the, what, the next 10 years, the 2025. And, and, and you know, it, may, it all kind of calls into question as you were speaking about this. I was thinking about the the controversies and pushback against the stormwater runoff fees that the legislature a couple of years ago voted in. Uh, the Maryland state legislature, let me be clear, legislature voted in. Uh, and with Governor Hogan and other county leaders kind of pushing back and killing what they're calling – what they call it the rain tax, which is I think a, a very strong political politi- – political um, uh, 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 Comment to make to kind of get that in people's consciousness, but that that feeds into all of this. Uh, right? that feeds, yes, that feeds into. Uh, you mean that the, the no, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean uh, the, 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 the governor Hogan has a different philosophy uh, about how this should all work. He's Republican, and this was all uh, handled really under a Democratic administration in Maryland, and so. He has an entirely different idea for uh, how everything in the Chesapeake Bay uh, watershed works. But it's interesting. I mean, Larry Hogan, when he uh, when when he takes steps, and then when when he's countered, or when, or when people talk to him, he seems to sort of go with what was in place already. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to figure Larry out when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> so I. I I'm, I'm curious as to get your analysis here of, of of what you think this ruling will mean. I mean, so so this ruling by uh, that it was U.S. District Court judges. You wrote uh, Sylvia Rambo, right? Uh, in the two thirteen decision, up upheld that EPA was correct within its rights under the Clean Water Act to part partner with six states, as you wrote, I'm quoting you, in the Bay Watershed to cut pollution from from that poison from sewers, construction developments, chemical and biological waste from farms. Right. Not just upheld, but upheld in very strong language, as I quoted some of it in you the did. story. And she was very firm in supporting EPA and saying that uh, basically the Farm Bureau and its uh, uh, allies had no claim 
uh, reason uh, to 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 take these steps. Uh, and she did that in the face of, uh, I guess, after she did that, uh, the appellate court uh, upheld her decision, even after 12 district attorneys from as far as Alaska joined <laughs> into this suit, which was uh, unusual, to say the least. And, and, and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So now that this becomes a law that will stand, what do you think that means? Just in terms of this one particular decision, before I ask you about the larger national opposition. Well, this is already a mouthful for the EPA. I don't, I, I don't know. We're talking 2025. The EPA has already said that they had no intention uh, of going into Mississippi and uh, tangling with uh, farms and cities there. That's what Mississippi covers so many jurisdictions. That would be just a huge undertaking. And whether EPA does it or not, uh, I think that's 10 years down the line, and, and who knows. But uh, I think that it would allow to really consider doing that. I, I think it opens the door to that, but whether that will ever happen, it really is an open question and it's doubtful right now. I guess it also depends on who be, who, who walks into the White House in January. That's, that's exactly that's, right. <laughs> and even then, I mean, we're still talking, it's still two terms for the next president in 2025 that the EPA will really take this on. Really, this is a, another nine years. So this thing started in 20. Another nine years to go. So, so, so the direct consequence of this, the Supreme Court upholding and saying we're not going to hear this, which upholds that decision. So, what, what, what do you think that will mean for the states? I mean, what, what in a, in a larger sense do they have to comply with now that they don't want to comply with? I mean, and how will they? How, what do you think the next the next events will be? Well, the the, the ball's in the EPA's court. I mean, the, the, the EPA, uh, the way they compelled the states to uh, play ball in the first place was. Uh, with permits. So they're like, if you don't play ball, then we want to allow you to, to do the type of construction that you need to expand and make your uh, states and cities and, and counties better. So uh, you might want to join us on this. And so they did. And there were some states that were dragging their feet, Pennsylvania being one, Virginia somewhat, and uh, New York somewhat. And I think that now that the, New York, that the EPA has a very firm hand. So EPA can compel them to uh, to keep their plan updated in the way that the regulations call for uh, year by year. And it, it is a year by year thing that they have to meet certain uh, goals in order to uh, uh, establish restoration of the bay. And now the EPA can really compel them to do that. This is fascinating. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to uh, folks from Maryland here who have been covering this as well. And and getting into what this might mean for state budgets and more and the reality of what this might mean. We've been talking with Daryl Fears, who uh, writes for The Washington Post. He covers the environment, focusing on the Chesapeake Bay and wildlife. Uh, we'll be linking to this article and some of his other articles around this. Uh, and Daryl Fears, thank you so much for joining us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. It's been a pleasure to meet you and have you on the air with us. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. We have to take a short break here, but stay with us. When we return, we continue this conversation about the Supreme Court decision affecting the Chesapeake Bay with Tim Wheeler of the Chesapeake Bay Journal and folks from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Stay with us and join us at 410-319-8888. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites right here on the Mark Steiner Show on the home of the 2016 Baltimore mayoral debate, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. We continue our conversation about the Supreme Court decision uh, upholding the Environmental Protection Agency's uh, new uh, rulings on through the Clean Water Act on cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. We are joined by Tim Wheeler, Managing Editor and Project Writer for the Chesapeake Bay Journal. Tim, welcome. Good to have you back. Hi, Mark. And congratulations on your new job. Well, thank you. It's very exciting. Really exciting. And uh, joining us by phone also is uh, Paul Smale, who is the Staff Litigation Attorney for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And, uh, John, I mean, Paul, welcome. Good to have you with us. 
Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at sinershow.org by email. Uh, you can log on to our Facebook pages. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, but 410-319-8888. This is, as we heard in our, in our last segment on this, um, we, the, the history of this with the Supreme Court. One of the things that we didn't talk about there that I just wanted to jump in and maybe uh, I'll start with you, Paul, and jump over to Tim about this, is the fact that this, the Supreme Court rejected uh, decided not to take this case um, uh, and and throw it back to the lower court ruling, which which sided with the Environmental Protection Agency, in part politically has to do with the death, many people are arguing in other articles I've read, of Justice Scalia, because the, the court has ruled against the EPA recently around greenhouse gases, and people thought this was going to happen with this case as well because of the uh, of the bent of uh, the majority of the court in this arena. So that this probably has something to do with that, don't you think? I, I think it's it's hard to to overlook that that factor, which is which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, traditionally, the Supreme Court uh, abides by what is called the rule of four in granting certiorari or, or taking review of lower court cases, where it requires the consensus of of at least four justices to take a case up on review. And if who, who knows if it could have been different if if Justice Scalia was was engaged and in, in, in around to to uh, take part in that in that conference. Um, I, did, I don't think you could deny that that it, it may have had a fact. <laughs> right. And what's your take on this, Tim? Covering it. Well, uh, the uh, the court doesn't you know uh, identify uh, vote count on these uh, decisions on whether to take cert or not. So you, it, it is purely speculation. But uh, you're right that. Uh, the court has uh, shown a willingness to uh, consider uh, limiting EPA's power in a number of other cases, and uh, given the ideological split of the, of the court, it's, uh, it's entirely possible that you would have had four justices there who wanted to at least hear this case. So, and this, this in many ways, I think, uh, Tim, and the way over to Paul, is, 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 is no minor victory for those who see themselves as activists around the cleanup of the Bay um, and people who have been involved in that for the last 40, 50 years, especially in the last 23 years or so we've been covering on the air. This, this, is, a, this is pretty significant, Tim. Well, it, it is, yeah. It, uh, it sort of clears the way. Uh, I mean, I think there was a, a collective uh, sigh of relief. Um, most of the uh, advocacy community out there was pretty confident that, the, you know, that they believe, given the uh, lower court rulings on this and the appellate court ruling, that, uh, that the, you know, the arguments were pretty heavily weighted in favor of uh, the EPA in this case, but uh, but you could never tell. Um, there are a lot of cases that uh, the Supreme Court does reverse lower court rulings on. So, so, Paul, I mean, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has been involved in this for a long time, obviously, and the, and the, the Bay's report cards have been, been annually pretty abysmal um, in terms of the health of the Bay, and we see that, you know, like that, that, that uh, huge, huge portions of the Bay uh, are are literally dead in the water. Forty percent of the of the bay. Some people argue, and more. Some others argue is are are have dead zones. Um, so so so. What do you, what does this portend? All the work that CBF and others have been doing over the years uh, for what might come in the next several years. Well, I think this decision or the decision not to take this case up. I mean, it 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 gets rid of a, a pretty major distraction, and it gets rid of a, a potential frankly, roadblock that, that some uh, jurisdictions or, or organizations might be uh, manning, so to speak, to, to prevent further work to, to clean up the bay. I mean, we've we had several communities, uh, organizations, and, and factions, so to speak, that, that were hanging their hat on, on getting rid of this, this blueprint to, to clean up the bay. And now that that's that issue has been uh, resolved uh, in the way it did, you know, regardless of, of the fashion in which it was resolved. I mean, it really does kind of allow us to focus on other issues, whether it's advocacy or, or restoration work or engaging uh, local communities and, and jurisdictions and governments to, to do the right thing um, within this, this framework of, of the TMDL and, and the implementation plan a lot of work to do as you as you described mark 
So, and Tim, but this, I mean, it's still, it's been a long haul here. And as, and I said earlier, I mean, when we still have a world where 60% of the bay is, is a virtual dead zone, um, which means, you know, insufficient oxygen to support aquatic life and more, which is, and, and the other things that are happening inside, um, um, the, with, with how fish are being born with both male and female organs and the, and the rest. So, so, but it's also, this is it's still a political battle. So, I mean, I wonder where, not an easy thing to translate because it also translates into dollar and cents. It translates into money that has to be spent by either farmers by themselves or municipalities on sewage or the state governments having to find money to kind of ameliorate and address these issues. And so, I mean, that's all a factor in this, despite what uh, EPA ruled. Yes. No, I mean, it's not all smooth sailing from here, that's for sure. Um, you know, the... Uh, the states uh, and the communities have just begun to sort of really get down to brass tacks on how to beat the uh, the limits that were imposed under the uh, you know the, the TMDL, the pollution diet, and uh, and you know there's still some some uh, you know uh, some some big hurdles here, and there's a lot of money that still has to be spent. Pennsylvania is uh, way behind in uh, meeting its obligations. Uh, they just were. Uh, uh, pressured to uh, to pr- produce a plan, a reboot plan to uh, to sort of catch up, uh, but uh, still a question about where the money uh, is going to come from to do that. And uh, and all the states are uh, you know still struggling to to meet all this. There's a, a huge milestone next year where uh, everybody's going to sit down and uh, and evaluate the, uh, the you know sort of the whole pollution diet and uh, how it's going and uh, may uh, adjust it. Up or down, so there's still a lot of push and pull. Well, to go. What does that mean, Tim? I mean, describe that in a greater depth, and Paul, you can jump into that as well. What does that? What do you mean that, that, that next year there will be a milestone, and what exactly is going to be debated, and what could that portend for what the EPA is suggesting needs to happen? Not suggesting ruling needs to happen. The way it uh, the way it was uh, laid out is there's going to be a so-called midpoint assessment. You know, they, the the uh, the Bay uh, CMDL uh, calls for. Uh, everybody to have everything in place needed to uh, to achieve the limits by 2025, but 2017 they're supposed to have 60 percent of those things in place, and there was an agreement at that point that they would, you know, take stock of what uh, what's been done so far and whether it's enough, and they're going to sort of reevaluate the, what science has been gathered, what more data has been gathered to see if. Uh, uh, they've actually set the right goals and uh, and are pushing the right buttons here to try to reach uh, a clean and uh, revitalized bay. I mean, is, Paul, you want to add into that a little bit? No, I think I think Tim characterized it very accurately. I think that it's it's a critical time, and it's you know it, we're going to have to look at the jurisdictions, and EPA is going to look at the jurisdictions and say where do we need to, to tighten our belts, where do we need to allocate resources, and and it's it's kind of it's not the day of reckoning, but it's it's getting close to it. I mean, you've only got a few more years after the midpoint assessments to reach the the ultimate goals of, of the TMDL. So it, it's it's a critical time. So I, and I, I guess let me push a little bit on what I was saying, and I wasn't being clear. That I think that 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 um, we have had these reports and commissions and rulings for decades now, and mm-hmm. we've yet to meet any really of of the goals that were set. So what does that mean to reach a goal? I mean, how realistic is it, A, do you think that, that we're going to reach the goal? And what happens if we don't? Well, if I, I could just take a stab at that and, and hand it over to Tim. Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the, the importance of, of the TMDL and the, and the watershed implementation plans is that we've got these the, the backstops that if, if certain sectors of, of pollution aren't Aren't meet, meeting their goals. There are ways through the through the permitting process and, and and other means to kind of ratchet down on on those discharges. Uh, the other important thing is that we've got these allocations. We've got numbers that that are real and tangible goals, and you've got ways to 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 measure those goals. So, you know, Chesapeake Bay Foundation's position is that this really is you know probably the the last best hope. To, to achieve the restoration of water quality in the bay that that you know decades of agreements decades of of good feelings and 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 good uh, intentions have have failed to produce so Tim 
I mean, I, I mean, you've covered this for years, and I, and I and the and, t- and the journal um, has been a kind of focus on this a lot. I mean, I, I yeah. and I don't mean to sound jaundiced. <laughs> <laughs> My skin's a little yellow too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, stuff since the beginning of the Bay Restoration effort, or at least those the, the one that began in earnest with the very first agreement uh, back in '83. Uh, and uh, you're right. I mean, I think it still remains to be seen how this works out. Um, there are, you know, there are consequences, uh, you know, that have been written into uh, the Bay uh, TMDL. Uh, EPA has made it clear that if the states don't meet their uh, meet their marks, make the uh, reductions, and take the steps necessary to meet the reductions, that they could take action uh, that could range anywhere from taking over and uh, controlling uh, permitting to shutting down. Uh, you know, new and expanded industries and development and that sort of thing. Wait, because uh, let me stop, Tim. Are you saying the EPA has, has the authority to do that? Well, they have said they, they would do it. Um, I mean, they've, they've said there would be consequences. We can look at what's happened with Pennsylvania as an example where um, the state was falling behind already in uh, keeping up with uh, its uh, requirements, and uh, EPA uh, withheld, after writing a couple of, you know, writing some stern letters and warnings, then they withheld... Uh, I think it was a little less than $3 million in, in uh, planning money for them and federal federal funds, which uh, EPA had direct control over. Um, the Pennsylvania finally got around to putting out a, a plan for how to catch up. And uh, even though there's some serious questions about how uh, realistic that plan is, especially without more money being spent, uh, EPA gave them the money back. So I think, you know, one of the questions here is, will there really be, uh, you know, uh, consequences and will everybody really be held accountable? One of the political factors here, of course, is that we're coming up on a, a national election. There's going to be right. a new administration. What will happen with EPA's stance? We've been sort of working under the Obama administration, EPA, which has made this Bay uh, uh, restoration a priority. And that, you know, it's the national treasure. Will the next administration uh, feel the same way um, about it? And will they give it the same priority? I think that that's something I, I raised earlier in our earlier conversation uh, um, uh, about this with Daryl Fierce from the Post, and, and we've just also been joined in studio by John Mueller, who is Vice President for Litigation at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and lead person on this court case. Good to have you in the studio, John. Thank you, Mark. Um, and uh, traffic is tough out there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you could join us. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I think that is part of the issue. I mean, there's a political issue here, I think, that that whether or not the EPA says it's going to use this ruling to move into some of the more egregious parts of the country, like what's happening up and down the Mississippi River, this clearly becomes a political football uh, because of that. Because if we think that the Bay is bad, take a ride down the Mississippi. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it, it was one of the issues that the Farm Bureau kept pressing in the case. You and by know, the way, we asked the Farm Bureau to join us. They declined. Uh, just want to say that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they kept trying to play this up to the Third Circuit and to the Supreme Court that, you know, if EPA is successful here in the Bay, then they're likely to bring this elsewhere, uh, including the Gulf um, and the Great Lakes. And, and you know, our response was, well, would that be so bad, you know, that we actually get, uh, get our water cleaned up? We don't have the algae pollution in the uh, Toledo, so we have to shut down our drinking water supplies, that sort of thing. So I think we do see that there is a, a change afoot, whether uh, what could happen in the Bay region is uh, transferable directly to elsewhere in the country. I think it all depends on the circumstances of the location and the and the state's willingness to participate. Uh, Paul, were you trying to say something there? No. I'll, I'll defer to my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. Tim, were you, was that you trying to say something? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess uh, and, you know, Jonathan uh, sort of correct me on this if, if, uh, if I'm uh, practicing law without a license, but one of the <laughs> distinctions that I heard made about this case you know, as opposed to that argument from the Farm Bureau and the home builders that this is somehow, uh, you know, the EPA's camp, you know, camel nose under the tent, they're going to do this everywhere, is that you had uh, none of the states in the Bay watershed uh, were fighting this TMDL. They were all essentially supporting uh, the imposition of it and um, and were, uh, were on EPA's side. Uh, in other cases where, um, where EPA is uh, sparring with the states, uh, over, uh, you know, reducing pollution, uh, it may not be quite that amicable. And uh, that's, you know, those kinds of, if, if EPA attempts to, to impose the same kind of a multi-jurisdictional, uh, you know, pollution diet in other cases, like on the Mississippi drainage where the states aren't uh, 
uh, willing to uh, do it, uh, you know, that could very well lead to litigation. That would be a much different because, hurdle to cross. Because there were 22 states' attorneys around the country that that supported the Farm Bureau, Farm Bureau and the fertilizer companies and others in, in encountering the suit, right? That's correct. And, you know, one of the things we found that was quite interesting is that in, when you look at those 22 states and how they write their total maximum daily loads for their states, they do it the same way we do it here. In fact, all, a bulk of those states were under consent agreements by a court order to work and uh, with EPA to develop those TMDLs. So um, they might have squawked about it and not liked it, but in reality, they actually did it. So, but this does, to me, again, beg the question that I raised earlier, and I uh, that with the, with the two of you, and I'll raise it again here, and I raised a little bit with Daryl Fears when he was on the show earlier, which is that this is what becomes a political question, it seems to me. Um, that the cost of doing what has to be done for the Bay, or the Great Lakes, or the Mississippi, but the, our Bay, uh, is huge. And how does it get paid for becomes the question. And a lot of it will have to be public dollars, not just private dollars. Um, it also means – look, look at the, the, the dump we just had in the, in the harbor from Baltimore sewage in the last major rainstorm um, that, and, and how it affects mostly – poor communities along the way around the state. So, and I meant little communities living in lower economic conditions around the state of Maryland, though I was always most deeply affected. So, but it costs money to do that. So what about, that, that, that to me is the heart of this battle, is what we are willing to pay for to get this done and how that's going to happen. Well, I, I think that's true. But, um, you know, people always talk about the, the cost associated with uh, restoring uh, harmed water resources. But what we did is we actually went out and, and uh, retained an economist at the University of Virginia to take a look at what is the value of a restored bay. And it was $22 billion annually. So um, we're talking about actually maybe making money on the deal if we look at, yes, it's going to cost a lot to do. In fact, we've been telling the home builders and local municipalities, you can't continue to develop the way you are developing Right. Um, and now the, the for sorry for the pun that you know the chickens have come home to roost, and and they they are, are right. <laughs> um, um, they they're going to have to do it because we're seeing a, a huge expansion on the eastern shore in the poultry industry as huge. well. Right. And and so we're saying, okay, wait a minute, you, you've you've got impaired waters. You're now adding you know more uh, poultry litter manure to an already overwhelmed. Uh, area, how are we going to address that? You can't just ignore it. Um, but getting back to your point about the cost, I do think that um, we create a, 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 f- a false conflict when we fail to look at the dollars that will come to us as a result, new jobs, um, new employment, um, uh, new businesses that will will happen as a result of restored waters. Tim, I'd like you to jump in on this politics of this as well, because you cover that pretty intensely at the Bay Journal. Well, uh Funding is, you know, money is always the uh, the, the stuff that, that has made the uh, wheels of the restoration effort uh, run or turn or whatever the mixed metaphor we want to use. <laughs> um, I think one of the challenges that we're going to see here now uh, is that the sort of the legality of EPA's role here has, has been settled for the pay restoration, at least, is, uh, is, you know, getting down into the weeds, one of the things to watch for, especially with this midpoint review, is are we going to sort of move the goalposts? Are we going to sort of declare right. victory and walk away? Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of you know, push and pull, as I mentioned before. Uh, the farmers are saying, basically, look, if we've done everything that we've been asked to do, we're not getting all the credit we deserve for all the, the pollution control efforts that we've made already. You give us credit, and you'll see that we've already done everything. We don't need to do more. And, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of talk about the trading uh, you know, to, to reduce costs, uh, that's fine. But I guess the question is, how accountable is that going to be? And is it going to be real reductions, or are we simply going to move things around on the board? Uh, so there's a lot of issues still to resolve about uh, about actually seeing results and uh, and not simply uh, uh, deciding that we've we've done it and uh, and you know, sit back and say it's finished. I think that I think that is. I mean, that that seems to be our history here too about. Um, um, John, of, of moving goalposts. And well, keep in mind too that we're we're essentially we're paddling uh, against the current because we're we're trying to restore the bay to a, a, a quality of water that uh, you know was uh, occurred decades ago, and meanwhile we're adding people and developing land all right. the while. 
Well, that's a fair point, um, Tim. But, uh, you know, from our point of view, from the Bay Foundations, and I'm I'm certain this is true for a number of other citizens' organizations that have fought so hard to get uh, what we have – in this Bay TMDL and the and the watershed implementation plans that each of the states have put together, um, and you know we're going to take them at their word and the and the language of the statute um, at its word, which is this means there are no new loads of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment for 92 different segments within the Bay watershed. And unless the states no are, new loads, no new loads, you cannot increase above the allocation that that. Uh, watershed, sub-watershed was given. So if you've got a new uh, increase in a wastewater treatment plant, a new industry that wants to move in and discharge new nitrogen, they have to have a way to offset that first. A new and larger cave for the people are building on the lower shore. Correct. So th- this is, I, mean, I, I do see yeah. this kind of, well, I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Tim? No, no, that's, he, he's right. I mean, that's what the, that's what the program requires. Uh, the states, uh, you know, Maryland in particular, has been sort of wrestling with how they how they uh, maintain that cap, and they yet to really come up with a, you know, a, a plan that everybody can agree on. So I think that's that's the ultimate solution, or the ultimate question is, you know, even if we're able to devise a, a roadmap for how to get to that, you know, that pollution limit, uh, can we keep it there? And uh, you know, the, the requirement is that we do, but the you know that's the next big hurdle after this. Yeah, I, I'm curious how this how this rolls out. With I know the, that 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 the President Secretary of the Environment here in Maryland thought it was was lauded the decision, right. but how that translates politically <laughs> is, a, is a very different question. Right. I mean, it, it, I think Tim hit on earlier. You know, changes in administration, you do see people yeah. start to backpedal, especially when it becomes costly. And we've seen that with the stormwater fees. You know, people want to call it a rain tax. Um, but Smart I, move on that part. Well, and we did see, though, just recently that I believe it was Howard was County was going to uh, repeal their fee. And then they said, well, wait a minute, how are we going to pay for this? Because at the end of the day, they have to meet their allocation and they have to come up with the dollars to do it. When we come back to this in the coming weeks, that, this, we, that could be a good discussion for us to have to see if we have to revisit this stormwater uh, tax and see where that goes. Uh, John Mueller, thank, thanks so much for coming in. I'm sorry the traffic held you up. Glad sorry, you got I'm, here. No, no, I'm glad you got here. Vice President for Litigation for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and lead person in the court case, uh, Paul Smale, staff litigation attorney. Thanks for filling in here. For John, as if, if it was, if we appreciate that. And Tim Wheeler, managing editor and project writer for the Chesapeake Bay Journal. Always good to have you with us, Tim, and uh, looking forward to your new work and what you do there at the Chesapeake Bay Journal. We'll stay in touch, Mark. Good to have you all here. Um, and, and right now I want to bring you a clip that I came across that I wanted to share with you. It, it's called A Vegan Change of Heart. And I'm bringing it to you, I am not a vegan, but this short clip is spoken by a son of a Scottish farmer who speaks from his heart about his decision to stop eating meat, and it did affect me, and I want to share it with you all. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We're living in a nation where there's growing condemnation of what is done to those who cannot talk. I was blind to all their pain, so I couldn't feel the shame in that broken piece of body on my fork. Then I wondered, could any child breed a bird that can't be wild, to eat its wings, take off its legs and its head? No. So we pay for hidden slaughter till we've addicted sons and daughters to our habit of eating the dead. And it's not so very long since who could see the wrong in breeding humans as slaves without pay? It can be a woman without a boat or killing a leopard for its coat. Did we ever see the evil of the day? So do you think you're any better? Now the animals we fetter outnumber every human, ten to one. And many children hardly eat because their food has fed your meat. While the blame for this shame you pass on. So give me avocados and I'll eat tofu burgers. You can even give me black bean curd. But please don't give me bread if it's wrapping the dead remains of the body of a bird. For every piece of flesh you buy, you're paying to breed the next to die. By compassion, no longer are we led. And for the cow, it's worse, I fear. They rod rape her every year, take every calf, take all her milk, until she's dead. This choice you say is your right, that you can eat just as you like, And it's merely an opinion that I voice. But your choice 
It kills so many. This opinion kills not any. And your victims, you give them any choice. So there's more to avocados and eating tofu burgers than minimizing sickness and your girth. No less than Einstein did resolve. From eating flesh we must evolve. Or mankind, he said, may not survive on earth. The age in which we're living is ever more misgiving over what is done to those who cannot talk. Are you blind to all their pain? Can you not feel the shame in that broken piece of body on your fork? Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I did, so I wanted to share it with you. Thank you all for listening here today to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, which are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sianna Greaves, Morgan Barber, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast The Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for the home of the 2016 Baltimore Mayoral Debate, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>